0: Oh, good morning, everybody. Missed you guys. <laughs> Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. <clears throat> For those of you that uh, don't know, um, a team of us from the college ministry on Friday night went to Ethiopia together to partner with a ministry called Mossyfoot Project where we saw just the Spirit of God being poured out among men and women even before we were there. Through prayer, through visions, through prophetic words, we, people on the team would be told things that would happen later on that day, and we were able to act on it in prayer strategically. People were getting dreams and divine appointments and opportunities as the doors opened for the gospel of Jesus Christ to go out into Ethiopia, but I hear something happened here last week as well at the seven-year anniversary as you guys met in Carpinteria at the high school together, and it wasn't really just the gathering itself that I was most blown away with. I guess there were a little less than 3,000 people gathered from all over to seek the Lord, That's wonderful, but it wasn't that that first grabbed my attention, but rather it was that over a thousand people were convicted to the point, falling on their faces, weeping before the Lord together, not in this building, you know, where we stimulate your affections with the lights and the AC, and not where we're comfortable being around one another, but where we are together at a high school in 90 degree weather and broad daylight the spirit of the living God fell upon the church in a powerful way and half the church was on their face. You, you must know that that is not a normal thing in America. Stuff like that doesn't happen. And I know that we're blessed to go to a church like this where the Lord is moving, but it's not normal. Yes, it should be, but it's not. It is a supernatural act of God in response to our many prayers, in which He then pours out His Spirit upon men and women of all ages that gather together in His name. It is a supernatural response when He pours His Spirit on us and I couldn't help but wonder as I was reading the email, just thinking of, of what happened on Sunday, what were people thinking and speaking about after that church gathering? Were you laughing and playing and reminiscing on a great sermon and a great outpouring of the living God as you were on your way figuring out what you were going to eat for lunch? And what what does something like that do to the church? When something like that happens in an amphitheater in the middle of Carpinteria nowhere, what does something like that do to stir up your affections? What are you doing now? Has anything changed in our lives because of what happened last Sunday? It's a fun thing to think about, but I don't think the correct response is always to laugh or to play. I think by the scriptures that the right response to the Spirit of God falling upon the church in that measure is to tremble. Because the Holy Spirit does not pour himself out upon the church just so that we can get a cheap thrill or so that we can have something to speak about during lunch. He doesn't pour himself out, expend himself upon the church, just so that we can have a euphoric high. Even though maybe all of those things are happening, that is not the point. Just as this happened in Ethiopia, the Spirit of God falling. Just as it happened in Carpentaria, the Spirit of God falling. Paul will also describe his response to the Spirit of God falling on the church in Corinth. And if anyone knows what we're going through, Paul knew it. Paul had open doors for the gospel. Paul had favor with people everywhere. Paul had favor with God. The church was being established. The church was full of joy. The church was standing firm in the gospel. The church was sealed by the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit. And there was only one problem that Paul wanted to address to the Corinthians in this chapter. One missing element. One last thing. A variable that was not there, that should be there for the Lord to work mightily among the Corinthians and mightily among the Realitians. Obedient people. He even says this in the first chapter in verse 9. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. In other words, when God blesses us with his presence, we best be ready to reflect it. This is what Paul is about to lay into in verse 14 of chapter 2 verse through verse 17. Let's read together. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one an aroma from death to death to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? We are not like many peddling the word of God, but it's from sincerity, but it's from God. We speak in Christ in the sight of God. I'd like to pray for us this morning. Jesus, as we look upon the past seven years of you consistently, faithfully blessing your church with the presence of the Holy Spirit and in power, our one prayer this morning, Lord, is that you would not let your spirit go to waste here on these coastlands. That we would know how to be expent. That we would know how to be poured out, wrung out, and used for your glory. That we might be good stewards of the gift of your grace and of your, your gifts and of the Spirit of God. I pray that we would be obedient with those things. And if we are not, I pray that you would give those things to somebody else. That your glory would go forth and there would be unclear, unmistakable knowledge in this place and in this state that there is a God and you are the king of glory. But we hope for the former Lord that you would use us and that we would stop wasting your time. We love you because you first loved us and we want other people to know you. Stir it up in our hearts today, in Jesus' name. Amen. As Paul opens the section of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he wants to make clear One thing about the Christian, Paul always starts from the premise of the gospel. He always starts from the knowledge of Jesus Christ and it's from there that he expounds and that he spreads out into things that we do. He never starts with the things that we do. He always starts with the right knowledge of the gospel. And what he is about to unpack is possibly the most important thing that you or I have ever heard in our Christian lives. It's as if we are containing something of infinite value. As if in our broken, frail bodies, we're containing something of incomprehensible value within ourselves. We're walking around with it just right there. We're just walking around with the most incomprehensible treasure known to man. It's in us. says in verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. So in other words, we're led by God always, Paul says, we're always led by God and we're led by God in every place. So God is leading us everywhere, all the time, in every place. If you are a Christian, everywhere that you are is because of the sovereignty of God to bring you there. Everywhere, always. But we're not empty handed. He's leading us everywhere at every time with something incredibly valuable. Paul calls it the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. When we speak about knowledge or when we speak about knowing something, we speak very surfacely. Two plus two equals four. I know that. It's an intellectual connection. I know that. Or haven't I met you before? I think I know you. What's your name? That's the extent of our knowledge. But when the apostles spoke of knowledge, when the biblical authors spoke of knowledge, they were speaking about the deepest sense of knowing somebody else. In Genesis chapter four, verse one, it was told that Adam knew his wife Eve, and then they conceived and had a baby. And the New Testament authors take that imagery and they use it to express the way that we are knowing Christ. Everybody knows John three sixteen God sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. But Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that you may know God. And he borrows the most intimate possible knowledge that a man could have of a woman. The only thing that we will have to get it. This infinitely beautiful, infinitely glorious, far beyond our finite mind's way that God wants to know us. We just can't deal with it. And so he creates an analogy called marriage. Just so that we can get it a little bit. Paul says in Ephesians. When he speaks about that mystery of a man and a woman loving each other, he says the mystery is not them, but it's the way that Christ loves the church. Paul now is telling us that we're led by God to every place, at every time, with this knowledge of Christ in us everywhere. We're like jars of clay containing a treasure. Some time ago when, we, when Reality LA launched their church plant in London, Reality London, we had a prayer tour over there. Many of us from Carpinteria went over there to be a part of that. Well, after seven days of running around the city and praying, my wife and I wanted to take a brief hiatus and we went to the museum at the Tower of London. At the Tower of London, we started to go through museums. And I'm all about the displays of the weapons and the battle axes and the swords and the horses. And Brianna, my wife, wanted to see the jewelry. <laughs> and so we went to the Tower of London with these conflicting desires. I wanted to see swords and smash things and horses. And I wanted to maybe take one home with me. And she wanted to see the crown jewels. Well, we, got to, we compromised. We were able to do both. At the end of the day, we went and saw the crown jewels of England, and they had stuff just spaced out. There was a golden crown, and there's like a scepter over here. And at the very end, and they start to build it up at the very beginning of the tour, it's coming. It's not here yet, but it's coming. Get wait. Get ready. At the end of the tour, it was something called the Great Star of Africa the largest polished diamond in the world. This is not something that newly wed husbands should take their wives to see. <laughs> oh. At the end of the tour, before we even got into the room, there's pictures, no camera, no flash, no looking, no writing, no thinking, don't do anything, just pass through. And we didn't even get to stay in the room. As soon as you go in the room, you have to hop onto this escalator and it just zips you by the great, the great, uh, the great star of Africa on this escalator. So there's not even any loitering. It's their, it's their greatest treasure. One of the biggest diamonds in the world and we, we went by it and we were just in awe of the beauty of this, this jewel for Two and a half seconds. And as I stepped out of the room and we were walking outside of the museum, it dawned on me because there was so much security around this, this scepter. It's now on a scepter that the the queen would hold whenever she was sitting on her throne and around that scepter were these cameras and these laser beams and cannons and this plexiglass and don't touch or you die and all of these warnings. And it dawned on me that as I left the room, I had no idea what the plexiglass looked like. I knew that it was there. It was overwhelming. It was like this big. I mean, it was a big diamond, but this glass casing was just overwhelming. It took up the room. It was bulletproof. There were cameras on it, but I don't remember any of the details about it. I don't remember if the glass was scratched. I don't know if it was tinted. I don't remember if it was beveled. I don't remember if the casing was sitting on a pedestal or or a nice little box or a crate. I don't remember anything about it because I was so mesmerized by the great star of Africa. Paul will tell us later in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7 we have this treasure in earthen vessels meaning we have a treasure of more infinite worth than that thing we know Jesus Christ in the most intimate possible way i know Jesus Christ And Paul is saying that intimate knowledge that I want to explode all over the world around you. I am housing in earthen vessels. I am housing in human form. You and me. I am housing in piles of dirt. Why? So that when you go out, nobody will care about the plexiglass. Or as Paul says, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God And not from ourselves. Nobody cares about the case. As living vessels of the treasured knowledge of Jesus Christ, we too were made not to be seen, but for Christ to continually be put on display in us everywhere we go and everywhere we live. If that doesn't give you chills, you should read it over and over again until it does. The knowledge of Christ simmering in you supernaturally. But then we're not to be sitting by living passively with this great treasure. We're not to be plexiglass. Paul tells us in verse 15, but we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Listen to this. To the one aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Do you see what Paul is saying about you? Whenever he uses the word fragrance, he's borrowing imagery from the Old Testament picture In the Old Testament, whenever there was spoken of a a fragrance, it had to do with a sacrifice that was pleasing to God for sin. In the church age, in the New Testament, we understand that that fragrance, that perfect, ultimate fragrance, was met in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so the Father is eternally satisfied in Christians, because he was the perfect, fragrant offering, satisfying him forever. But that's not what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians. He's saying, you now are an extension of Christ's fragrance in the world. And it's twofold, you understand, Elsewhere, Paul says the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so even our aroma, our, our supernatural fragrance of heaven is twofold. When I was growing up, my dad would pull me into his pickup truck and we'd go for rides and he'd turn on that truck and instantly this overpowering sense of diesel and fumes would begin to permeate the the front cabin and I'd love it. I don't know if it was just the boy in me, but I just love the gasoline fumes. It made me feel like a man. I'd be in my room just tired and half asleep and he'd turn on the truck to go to work and the fumes would get into my room and I'd just I'd somehow associate those fumes with my dad like oh! <clears throat> Oh, diesel. Oh, yeah, let's go shoot things. Let's build a hot rod from scratch. Whatever. Gasoline, yeah. But my wife, Brianna, hates the smell of gasoline. And here's the conflict that we have every time we go to the gas station. (laughs) I want to roll the windows down. I want to pump the gas. I want it to permeate my clothing. And she hates it. Oh, roll the windows up. That's so gross. It's going to get on my clothes. It's going to get on your clothes. And it's going to get in the laundry. It's going to get on all of our clothes. And it's going to mess up our whole house. Oh, I love it. I want to build a Tonka truck. (laughs) One thing, she hates it. I love it. Either way, it has a distinctive, overpowering, even pungent aroma to everyone involved, and so does the Christian. Paul tells the Corinthian believers that regardless of where they are or what they're doing, they and you have a peculiar aroma about them, and one of them is great. He says, we have the aroma of life to life to those who are being saved or are going to be saved. Meaning that supernatural fragrance of heaven is emanating. We might not smell it. It's not a real smell. Duh. (laughs) But it's affecting people that God has his hand on. By you going out. Trip out. I saw this firsthand in Ethiopia. Not... Not with me, but with college students as they went out. They've been here at this church, soaking up in the presence of Christ. Just just going nuts. Like I've got to pour this out somewhere. We went into the heart of Ethiopia and they poured out. Started laying hands on the sick and the demon possessed. And I saw with my own eyes... Everything from pinched nerves to blindness healed instantly. As 20 year olds stepped out in faith, yeah, praise God. We saw blind eyes being opened, demons left the oppressed. Even tiny things like pinched nerves and soreness. Everything that was on the first day. After the first day, we stopped asking people if they were getting healed because we just saw that God was doing it and He didn't care if we had to know it or not. That's, what the, that's the business that God is in, restoring that which is broken, whether in this life or in the one to come. They were laying their hands on HIV patients, on widows, on mossy foot, people with feet so disgusting you would vomit. There was a supernatural fragrance that arose in their hearts as they fell in love with these people in a way that can only happen when the fragrance of Christ is alive in you. The fun thing about the trip was It wasn't just us emanating the fragrance of Christ to them. It was them emanating the fragrance of Christ back to us in this mutual fellowship we call the church where people who love Jesus gather together and begin to reflect the glory of God to each other back to God. We had opportunities to go into widows' homes. And let me tell you about widows in Ethiopia. They're poor in a way that many of us do not understand poverty. There are no food stamps over there. There's no welfare. There's no government programs. There's no nice people to give you a handout. There's not even cement. And so I would go into these huts, and the way that you would build a house was by digging a ditch into the ground, putting sticks that you chopped off from trees, and then just packing those sticks with mud. And then when it was high enough, you would put grass on the top. And that was your home, if you were lucky enough to have one. And inside, you're sitting on mud, wet mud. You're laying down. You're nursing. You're having kids on mud. You're eating food on mud. You're relieving yourself in your house in the mud. And it was in one of the most disgusting situations I've ever been in that the glory of Christ shone so brightly. Many of you donated to this trip and we were able to use what you gave us to buy clothing for children from Target. And so we would go to these widow's homes and give them clothes and their kids don't have clothes. They're running around naked in the rain. And so we would present the widow with clothes. And even before we got out of the car, the widow would rush out of her house, screaming the praises of God in Americ or Walletania, weeping before the Lord. It was as if she didn't even know that we were there. And over and over and over again, team members would go into the hut, pray for them, and present to them these clothes. I want to show you a picture of one of them in response. Time and time again, her response, their response was never to thank us. What she's doing right now is giving glory to God for taking care of her child. I don't often see a face like that. I know a lot of people who have everything that they've ever dreamed about, and they don't smile like that. She was a fragrance of the worth of Christ to us. We thought we were ministering to her, but she showed us Jesus. Paul says, you, Christian, are a lively fragrance to other people who are on their way to being saved. Well, then it gets a little bittersweet. Paul says, among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death. Meaning, you may carry the aroma, Christian, of heaven to some people, but there are other people that are you, you are carrying the aroma to death. Some people, you may be reflecting the beauty of Jesus Christ and the thought of heaven to others who are continually rejecting God without you even opening your mouth simply because of the spirit that lives in you. You are reflecting their judgment and condemnation. You carry the aroma of hell to people who are rejecting God. Does this not make you nervous? Is this not too much to bear? Have you ever gotten food poisoning from a restaurant that you used to love? A restaurant that you would go to every day, every morning, every afternoon, every night until you ate that uncooked chicken. Not only would you get uncontrollably sick, but even when you got well, you remember that feeling of thinking back on that restaurant or thinking of that, that specific dish that you ate? Even if it's years later, a nauseating, just sickening thought comes to your stomach. I guess thoughts don't come to your stomach, but to your mind, back to your stomach. <laughs> Paul is saying this is what you remind people that are rejecting Christ of. And you don't need to tell them of their judgment. Christians don't need to tell people, you're going to hell. Ah. Paul says they're going to know it simply by being around you until they repent. Does that not make you nervous? Not only that, but Paul tells us in the text that we carry that aroma everywhere we go. Either one to life or one to death. Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation to those people. We have an obligation to people that are dying. We have an obligation to put Christ on display and to put his fragrant worth and value on display. And some of you are being that. There are countless of you in this church that I'm so blessed to know that are more that than I'll ever be. Whether it's a college team that's going to Ethiopia, or it's some of you that are just working on your neighbor. Some of you that are faithfully toiling at Starbucks making lattes, not knowing what you're doing there, but you understand that God has you for a purpose in that place because you are supernaturally putting Christ on display. The countless stories that I've heard of you, church, loving the homeless and the poor and the destitute, going on mission to the nations, going on mission in your backyard, being on mission with your family, being on mission with your coworker, Some of you are being a fragrance of Christ. Praise God. Think immediately of one of the first days that we were in, the town that we were in, Soto, Ethiopia. I pulled up to the hotel. We're in the middle of nowhere. I roll up to the hotel and I see four American guys and girls, a little younger than me, outside the restaurant, and they're talking to Sharon, the president of Mossy Foot, and Matt and Amber, who are on staff. They're just sitting outside of the hotel talking, and one of the girls walks up to me. She says, hi, my name is Jamie. I said, hi, my name is Chris, and immediately out of her mouth, she trips me up a little bit, but she's like, do you know Roxanne Love? I said, well, yeah. She's the drummer this morning. And she's like, yeah, I, w- I went to school with her in Santa Barbara. I used to live in Santa Barbara, but I left it, and I live here now. Another guy comes up to me. His name is Sam. Sam introduces himself to me, and he says, hey, my name is Sam. Uh, I used to go to a Adorn. You don't know me, but I actually got right at reality. Reality is the reason that I'm here, and I live here now. pressed on by God with the faith of a child these men and women in their early 20's said where will you send me when God told them they packed their bags and left I trip out on those stories every time I hear them days later we went into the capital city of Ethiopia called Addis Ababa and I ran into another girl who calls reality her home her name is Monica She lives in the city now. She left Santa Barbara and Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, beautiful cities, to live in one of the most disgusting cities you have ever seen in your life. Why? Because she was strategically placed there at a renowned Christian school where she teaches international students about Jesus. The school is so renowned that Muslims bring their children to the school and there's a three-year waiting list to get into the school. And she has sat down with Muslim families and said, you know that this is a Christian school, right? Yeah, we know. You know we're gonna teach your children about Jesus, right? Yeah, we know. Younger than me, more radical than me, they're longer than me, doing things that I can't even imagine. Some of us are being fragrant. Others are keeping that fragrance to ourself. Now, every Christian has the fragrant aroma of Jesus Christ, but only some of us are sharing it with the world. And by the world, I don't just mean pack your bags and go to a third-world country. I just mean get out of the building. When we were in the capital city, we had a bus driver in Addis Ababa that had a great-smelling bus. It was like life to my soul, being in that smoggy town, walking into that bus... And he had just canisters and candles and the little hanging trees and the aromatic incense and things burning and stuff shooting out of the bus. And we walked into it. And it was like just walking into a a wall of aromatic spices. It tingled the nostrils. (laughs) But it was ironic because we were driving through one of the most disgusting areas of town. Men urinate right next to you in public. But our bus smelled real nice. Some of us come on Sunday and we let the fragrance of Christ out during worship. And it's no wonder that it's so sweet on a Sunday morning. A bunch of juiced up people on Christ are gathering together and letting everything that they know Spill out in fellowship. No wonder. It's wonderful. But the ironic thing about our church is that the building smells fragrant. It's fast growing. We have deep worship, great Bible teaching, Britt Merrick. Everybody. We have a wonderful reputation among Christians and non-Christians. I mean, Francis Chan, hello. (laughs) But it's not the righteous that have need of a doctor. And our church smells real nice. But our world is dying. The world needs more Sam's. people that are out of their mind and are actually willing to do what God has called them to do, whether far off in the world or here in their neighborhood. I was so blown away by these young people that I brought them out to dinner. The whole college team brought them out to dinner and I sat down with Sam and I looked at him and I said, you guys are my hero. I said to every team member, you guys are my hero. You're doing it. You're doing what we have not yet figured out. You're obeying the Bible. You guys are radical. Sam looked at me and he smiled. He said, No, we're not. This is normal. This is normal Christianity. What Sam understands is what Paul is trying to explain in verse 17. We are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. Sam understood he was carrying the infinitely valuable knowledge of Christ everywhere. He was given the fragrance of Christ either unto death or unto life everywhere. And he was doing it in the broad view of God his, his, his Lord at all times and he trembled at the thought and he grew restless with the thought and he had to do something for the glory of God. He was not content with what he was doing at the time. Brothers and sisters, we also have God's presence. Do we not? Last Sunday... This Sunday, every Sunday, every prayer meeting, every youth group, every college gathering, everything that we do, have we taken light of it? We have the presence of God among us. We have the fragrance of God among us. We even have the authority of God among us with that a tremendous obligation and opportunity to bring dying people face to face with the all-surpassing worth and glory of our God. What do you want to live for in this life? Jesus said in John 9, 5, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he said in Matthew 5.14, now you are the light of the world. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, you are the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ in this world. Putting him on display like a plexiglass case. What I've noticed in most of the world is that one of the biggest obstacles to most people is poverty. And yet what I've seen time and time again is that God uses what Satan intended for evil, for the saving of many people, and for his glory. And I've seen the most poor people in the world give the greatest amount of glory to God. And why is it that you think Because in their poverty they are made rich. They have nothing in this world to vie for their attention. They have not the idols that you and I have. All that's left for them is Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit pours out the Father and the Son on them immeasurably. James says the poor are rich in faith. They're more able than us to say, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. You see, in America and even in California, we don't have the same obstacles. We have opposite things, but they are obstacles to us like comfort. And the peace of knowing that it's all going to be saved. It's all going to be a rose garden. It's all going to be consistent and normal and easy and nice. And just as advertised in that brochure. My best life now. And it breaks my heart. To wonder and not know how many people are in this congregation right now who have had their hearts unintentionally limited and ripped off by the retirement lie that our country propagates all the time. That thing that you're chasing. It's not wrong to retire, but it's that thing that we're chasing. If I just get my kids into a private school so they can go to a good college, so they can get a good job, so they can buy a big house, then they can stop working at a young age, they can bring me into their house, they can support me, they can brag about it to all their friends who are able to single-handedly tackle the American dream and sit comfortably in their recliner during tea time. That's what I want to live for. That's why I have this job. That's why I went to college. That's why I live and move and breathe and exist is so that I can get to the point where I don't have to work and I could just watch reruns for the rest of my life. Is that the greatest thing that we have to live for? Paul was a freak. We do this while the world around us jumps head over heels through the jaws of hell. Do you understand that? Do you understand that people are not being dragged into hell? They are jumping over each other to get into it. Because of the wickedness of their heart, because of the deadness of their sin, because of their inclination to trade creation for their creator, that is the direction that all humans go aside from Jesus Christ in the gospel. They want to get there. And they are blinded to the knowledge of the glory of Christ Jesus. And Paul says, you have been entrusted with the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. That should stir up in you a nervous excitement. I pray this morning that being in the presence of God will cause the joy of your salvation for many to be restored to such an extent that a restlessness would begin to surface in the heart of Christians here wanting something more in this life. Is your end ultimate goal in this life was not to handle your nine-to-five job, though that's maybe what you will do for the rest of your life. God has eternal plans for you that will cause the world around you to shake and tremble. Where are those people? Where are the youngins like Sam and Jamie and Monica Where are the young people who will live recklessly for Jesus Christ in this building, who are just naive enough to believe the word that he says? Where are the families that will risk everything for the glory of God? Those that have already settled down into the scheme of things, who already have their normal schedule and are quite happy with it, where are the families that are willing to turn their backs on that for something more? Where are the middle-aged men who want more out of their lives than just to retire well and to watch TV until they die? Where are the 60-year-olds and the 70-year-olds and the 80-year-olds and the 90-year-olds who will say, I am not done here. Oh, don't get me wrong. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better but to remain in the flesh with you young people is more necessary on your account. There's a picture on the screen of an old man named Bassa. It's me on the right and that's Alex, our worship leader on the left, who's bigger than life. Bassa is 107 years old. And he walks miles to church with his cane and his Bible, and he looks at young people, and he says, this one is for my strength, and this one is for my spirit. When Alex met 107-year-old Basa, he, Mr. 20 Questions, just came unglued. He was just asking him the whole world. What's it like being old and... How do I do that? What do you eat? And the question started to get a little deeper, you know, like, wow, you must know Jesus. Like, what's that, what have you done? Like, and then he asked, can you tell us about your history? Like you were born in like 1600s or something. Can you tell us like about your history? Like what was life like? And Bassa said, no. I have no history except for Christ. I wanna say this. I wanna say this and mean it. When I was 18 years old, I would get out of my bed every day and look at my life as this long thing that I had for the rest of my life And I know, God, you have a calling on my life. And I'll get to it, you know, in my 20s or whatever. But right now, I want to do my own thing for a while. I want to be comfortable. One day, I blinked. I rolled out of bed, and I was 29. And I looked back on a life that was frivolous. 10 years that I had wasted on things that I can't even recall because they were that mundane. 10 years of my life that I wasted. And I know I'm young. I know some of you are thinking, ah, you're still young, you got a few more years in you. I know because you guys tell me that in the foyer like every week. <laughs> but let's get real. I'm going to blink again and I'll be 80. 80. And I want more than anything to be able to say to 20-year-olds, I have had no history worth hearing except for that which was touched by Christ. Some of you are hearing this this morning and you feel guilty because you have wasted parts of your life maybe you're much older than me and you're like man I haven't done anything I'm too far gone that is a lie from hell God never motivates by guilt or condemnation he always motivates by grace the fact of the matter is you are entirely delightful to God regardless of what you do So what you need to do this morning is not just to rush out and try to fill in every volunteer card and go on mission everywhere. Don't rush out and do something. Just spend this morning soaking up the fragrance of Christ and become undone by His beauty and His grace. And when it becomes too much to contain, stop containing it. Like Jeremiah, who said, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Well, some of you are guilty, some of you are just lazy. And while those of you that are guilty are hearing a lie from Satan, those of you that are hearing that your life now is too comfortable are not hearing a lie, you're hearing the truth. Obviously, it's too comfortable. Why wouldn't it be? It's so much easier for me to watch people like Sam and to somehow just pray for them and to live vicariously through their lives. rather than to carry the burden of heaven and hell on my own shoulders. That's why Paul said, who is adequate for these things? Nobody is. No one's adequate to carry such a burden. God doesn't need adequate people. He doesn't need educated people. He doesn't need older people. He doesn't need younger people. He doesn't even need passionate people. He doesn't care about your degree. He doesn't care about your experience. He doesn't care about your denomination. He wants men and women of all ages from one to 107 who are undone by the thought of grace. He wants young men and women. He wants old men and women. He wants middle-aged men and women. He wants children who know nothing else except for the glorious fragrance of Christ and His cross. He wants men and women of all ages who are forever uncomfortable with containing that aroma, containing that knowledge, containing that presence in a dinky little church like this. Brothers and sisters, he's been giving us his spirit for seven years because we've been asking him for seven years. And if we continue to ask for the spirit of God to fall upon us, but we disobey him when he tells us to move, there will come a day where he will stop pouring out his spirit on us and he will pass over reality carpenteria for people that are obedient. And if that happens, this will simply be a movement that we reminisce on Remember those great Bible teachings, Agony of Victory, Missio Christi? Remember that one time when the Spirit of God really fell? That was so awesome. And we will bring God on that last day works of stubble and hay that amount for nothing because we did not obey Him when He gave us everything that we needed to transform the world around us forever. Who will heed the voice of God? Heaven is too wonderful. Hell is too horrific. And Jesus is too beautiful for us to keep him to ourselves in this building any longer. Heavenly Father, you have been so faithful to give us every spiritual blessing that we need and require to do wonderful things. And you yourself promise that you are able to do exceedingly, abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Whatever it is that you're doing on this coastland among us, we are so thankful for, we're so excited about, but if we are lazy, if we have been keeping the beautiful fragrance of Christ to ourselves in any aspect, I pray that you would draw our hearts to repentance by your loving kindness. We don't want to make a name for ourselves, we don't want to fly a reality banner. We don't want to be a part of a movement just for the sake of being a movement or the sake of following a leader. We want to know that a dent was made in the works of hell and death. We want to trail into the arms of our Father to hear you say, Well done, good and faithful servant. I entrusted you with a lot, and you were faithful with it. And you know our hearts, Christ Jesus who is adequate to do these things. We have failed miserably, and yet you being a God of grace have lavished your love upon us. I pray that we would take advantage of grace this morning, that we would be moved by it, and that we would never again be comfortable with where we're at in life, as if a mortal body could be comfortable housing the infinite glory of the living God. You stretch us today, Lord. Do things that we could never imagine. In Christ's name. Amen.